den Richtlinien so vorgenommen worden sind, wie wir das für richtig halten. Das heißt... A name. Dana Grossman of 52 Fork Road raised a crooked finger to the phone book and touched a name with her long, jagged black fingernail. She smiled, her crooked teeth extended over her discolored bottom lip. Peterson Alva, 32 Loray Street. Mrs. Grossman paused, sniffed the putrid air that circulated in her dim apartment. Very little sun crept in through the molded blinds. From the far wall of her kitchen to her desk, where she always sat, were old dusty books piled nearly to the ceiling. She stood, her bones creaking with every movement, and carried herself slowly to her black cauldron that sat upon her kitchen counter. The hump on her back moved up and down under her black, tattered dress. She looked inside her cauldron and grunted. She reached inside her cupboard, and took a tiny gray mouse from its trap. It squirmed in her gnarly hands until she sliced open its throat with a long, skinny razor blade. The blood from the mouse dribbled in the cauldron into a white, murky liquid, causing a slight flash, and smoke rose and fell as she spoke in very bad Latin. Ah, she said to herself, that should take care of him. She slowly walked back to her desk to pick out another name. The doorbell rang. Mrs. Grossman cursed under her breath. It better not be those horrible Kaladi children. Her heavy black boots pounded the floorboards hard, still not reaching the door any faster. I'll cook and eat every one of their fat little bodies and pick my teeth with their bones. She looked through the peephole. She saw a tall, dark-haired woman dressed in a business suit, her hair pulled tightly back and very white, clear skin. It was her daughter, Clarissa. The door opened quickly. A hand grabbed Clarissa and pulled her inside the apartment. She winced as she whirled inside, knocking a few books over, losing a high heel in the process. Get in, Mrs. Grossman screamed in a hoarse voice. Mother, Clarissa cried out, what are you doing? Mrs. Grossman was looking through the peephole, mumbling to herself. Mother, Clarissa found her left heel and sat in a chair filled with musty books. She carefully placed her foot in and stamped against the floorboards. Oh, hello, Clarissa. I don't want those horrible children near my door. God, are you still terrorizing those poor innocent children? Clarissa crossed her legs. You could get into terrible trouble. Those are not good, kindly children who help the elderly across the road. Mrs. Grossman ran her black fingernails through her stringy white hair. I'm telling you, Clarissa, those are little demon spawns. Then they would be right at home with you. Clarissa picked up a book entitled Farah's Demonology, How to Entice and Enslave the Modern Demon. Still dabbling in the occult there, Mother? Occult, Mrs. Grossman snapped. And yes, 
And yes, it's just as real as that accounting job you have. Hey, I didn't say giving people curses wasn't, and I like my job. It took me a long time to be head accountant. Mrs. Grossman took a few steps past her daughter. You meant it was silly. Would you like some tea? Well, it is that. Wait, do you still keep mice in your cupboard? Clarissa raised an eyebrow. Of course I do. Mrs. Grossman dragged her boots across the floorboards, causing an unpleasant sound inside Clarissa's already aching head. No thank you, mother. She made a face at the thought of mice and different bugs crawling over her mother's food in the kitchen. I'm having some anyway. What brings you here today, Clarissa? Mrs. Grossman called from the kitchen. It's not Saturday. You never visit on a weekday. Clarissa shrugged. I've come to bring your glasses. She took out a pair of silver Coke bottle frames from her purse. Mrs. Grossman returned to the living room, knocking over a stack of books. In her hands was a cup of black murky tea, as thick as mud. There's nothing wrong with my eyes, she sulked, her upper lip curled up. My eyes. Are terrible, mother, and you know it. Last month, Dr. Sheridan told you your eyesight was one of the reasons for your fall. That's why I brought you these. Clarissa stood and bounced toward her mother's desk, placed them on a phone book. Clarissa's face fell. Oh, no. She quickly turned to Mrs. Grossman. You're using Aunt Della's phone book again, are you? Look, Clarissa, don't give me any speeches. Mrs. Grossman looked troubled. More wrinkles crossed her brow. Mother, I found you hovering in a dark corner without your clothes on last year, blubbering about that book trying to kill you. I thought I burned it. You can't destroy it, Mrs. Grossman giggled, slightly off a note. I know, I know. Clarissa threw her arms up. Once you use the book, you have to keep doing its bidding. I guess I never should have taken it at her wake 35 years ago. But I was so eaten up with getting revenge on your father. He ruined us, took all the money he made with the syrup company, left us for that woman. Yes, mother, it happened, and we made it out okay. You raised me perfectly, with the exception of mistrust of men. M mother? Clarissa lowered her perfectly drawn eyebrows, puzzled. Yes, Mrs. Grossman barely took herself from the thoughts of yesteryear. You copied this name from the phone book? Clarissa picked up a yellow notepad. She showed it to her mother. Yeah, so what? The name you wrote down is not Alva Peterson, but Alan Pratterson of 42 Shore Street. God, mother, use the damn glasses if you're going to do this stupid curse thing. Clarissa slammed the notepad back on the desk and picked up her purse. Where are you going? Mrs. Grossman whined. I'm late getting back to work. I only came on my lunch. She rushed to the door, opened it. I love you, Clarissa, Mrs. Grossman said. I know you do, mother. Clarissa turned to her, thought a moment, smiled. I love you too. I'll try to come over Saturday. Mrs. Grossman smiled back. Her rotting teeth were like barbed wire on fence posts. Be careful out there, darling. Bye, mother. Clarissa closed the door, and she was gone. Mrs. Grossman had to quickly get her mind back on her work. She went to her desk, sat down. She picked up her glasses, mulled over what Clarissa had said. She threw them in her trash can. Nothing wrong with my eyes, she scoffed. She took a crooked finger and flipped through several pages of the phone book. She heard a voice moan. All right, all right, she said to the phone book. A name is coming up. Danielle Gestling, 25 Fredericks Road. Hmm, let's stop her heart. She checked off the name by underlining it with a black marker, then copied it on her notepad.
She went to the cauldron on her kitchen counter. From her cupboard, Mrs. Grossman removed a jar of crushed wasps and poured half of them into the white, murky liquid. The cauldron sizzled, then bubbled up. Mrs. Grossman dropped the jar of crushed wasps. It shattered into a thousand pieces under her feet. She clutched her chest with her gnarly hands and stopped breathing just as she fell to the tiled floor of her kitchen. In the phone book, a name underlined with black marker, was Dana Grossman of 52 Fork Road. Possession of Angela Bradshaw From Touch of Nutmeg and More Unlikely Stories by John Collier There was a young woman, the daughter of a retired colonel, resident in one of London's most select suburbs, and engaged to be married to Mr. Angus Fairfax, a solicitor who made more money every year. The name of this young woman was Angela Bradshaw. She wore a green suede cardigan and had an Aberdeen Terrier. And when open-toed shoes were in fashion, she wore open-toed shoes. Angus Fairfax was as ordinary as herself, and pleasant and ordinary were all the circumstances of their days. Nevertheless, one day in September, this young woman developed symptoms of a most distressing malady. She put a match to the curtains of the drawing room and kicked, bit, and swore like a trooper when restrained. Everyone thought she had lost her reason, and no one was more distressed than her fiancé. A celebrated alienist was called in. He found her in a collected frame of mind. He made a number of little tests, such as are usual in these examinations, and could find none of the usual symptoms of dementia. When he had done, however, she burst into a peal of coarse laughter, and calling him a damned old fool, she reminded him of one or two points he had overlooked. Now, these points were extremely abstruse ones, and most unlikely to be known to a young girl who had never studied psychoanalysis, or life, or anything of that sort. The alienist was greatly shocked and surprised, but he was forced to admit that while such knowledge was most abnormal, and while the term she had applied to him was indicative of the extreme of folly, he did not feel that she could be certified on these grounds alone. But cannot she be certified for setting fire to my curtains? asked her mother. Not unless I find symptoms of insanity, said the specialist. You can, of course, charge her with arson. What? And have her go to prison? cried her mother. Think of the disgrace. I could undertake her defense free of charge and doubtless get her off with a caution, said Mr. Fairfax. There would still be the newspapers, said the colonel shaking his head. At the same time, it seems extraordinary that nothing can be done about it. Saying this, he gave the eminent alienist 
his check, and a look. The alienist shrugged his shoulders and departed. Angela immediately put her feet on the table. Her legs were extremely well turned and recited a string of doggerel verses celebrating the occasion in great detail and casting scorn on her parents and her fiancé. These verses were very scurrilous, or I would reproduce them here. During the next few days, she played some other tricks, all of them troublesome and undignified. Above all, she rhymed away like the principal boy in a panto. A whole string of doctors was called in. They all said her misbehavior was not due to insanity. Her parents then tried a few quacks, who, powerless to certify, were also impotent to cure. In the end, they went to a seedy madam who claimed to see into the soul. The whole thing is perfectly clear, said this unprepossessing old woman. Your daughter is possessed of a devil. Two guineas. They asked her to exorcise the intrusive fiend, but that was ten, so they said they would think the matter over and took Angela home in a taxi. On the way, she said to them with a smile, If you had the decency to ask me, I could have told you that was the trouble all along. When they had finished rating her for allowing them to go to so much expense unnecessarily, they asked her how she knew. In the simplest way, she said, I see him very frequently. When, cried the colonel. Where, cried her mother. What is he like, cried her fiancé. Oh, he is young and not all bad-looking, replied Angela, and he talks most amusingly. He generally appears to me when I am alone. I am seldom alone but in my bedroom, and it is there that I see him, between eleven at night and seven in the morning. What does he say? cried her father, grasping his malacca. Is he black? cried her mother. What does he, uh, how do you know it is not a she-devil, cried her fiancé. He expresses himself rather coarsely, but I believe sincerely, replied Angela. I sometimes find the things he says quite beautiful. He is not black, he is not a she-devil. But how does he appear, asked her mother. Frequently I find him beside me when I have got into bed, said Angela, with the greatest composure in the world. I have always asked you to let me order a wider bed for that room, observed her mother to the colonel. This fiend must be exercised at once, said Angus Fairfax, for there is no bed wide enough to sleep three once we are married. I'm not sure that he wants to be exercised, said Angela. In any case, I must ask him first. Colonel Bradshaw, said Angus Fairfax, I hope you realize my position in face of these revelations and of all that lies behind them. I cannot but withdraw from the engagement. A good riddance, I say, 
observed the fiend, now speaking for the first time. Be quiet, dear, said Angela. Mr. Fairfax rapped on the glass, stopped the taxi, and got out. In face of what we have just heard, said he, no action for breach of promise can possibly lie. It is not the custom of the Bradshaws to bring actions for breach of promise, said the colonel. No more shall we sue you for your share of the taxi fare. The fiend, while Mr. Fairfax hastily fumbled for his money, recited a valedictory quatrain, rhyming most obscenely upon his name. To resume our tale, they got home. The colonel immediately telephoned for the old madam to come, regardless of cost. I'll have this fiend out before eleven tonight anyway, miss, he said to his daughter, who laughed. The old madam turned up, bearing a great box of powders, herbs, bones, symbols, and heaven knows what else. She had the drawing room darkened and the wireless disconnected from its aerial just in case, and, as an afterthought, had the colonel go out with a sardine to tempt a cat in from the street. They often like to go into a cat, she said. I don't know why. Then Angela, being seated in the middle of the room, and the ornamental paper being taken out of the fireplace, because fiends very frequently like to make an exit by way of the chimney, the old woman lit a joss stick or two and began to mumble away for dear life. When she had said all that was required, she set fire to a saucerful of Bengal light. Come forth, Asmodeus, she cried. Wrong, said the fiend with a chuckle. Bother, cried the old woman in dismay, for the flare had shown the cat eating one of the bones she had brought. That was a bone of St. Eulalia, which was worse than Keating's powder to devils and cost me twenty guineas, she said. No devil will go into that cat now, and the bone must go into the bill, and the colonel must go into the street to fetch a fresh cat. When everything was resettled, she began again, and, lighting a new saucerful, Come forth, Beezlebub, she demanded. Wrong again, said the fiend, with a louder chuckle than before. They'll never guess, darling, said Angela. The old beldam went on at a prodigious expense of the Bengal light, which was of a special kind, she called on Belial, Belphegor, Mahoud, Radamanth, Minos, all the fiends ever heard of, and all she brought forth was taunts and laughter. Then who the devil are you? cried the colonel at last. William Wakefield Wall, replied the fiend. You might have asked that at the beginning, said Angela quietly. And who, if you please, is William Wakefield Wall? inquired her mother, with dignity. At least, dear, he is not one of those foreign fiends, 
she added to the colonel. He is some charlatan, said the old woman. I have never heard of him. Very few Philistines have, rejoined the fiend with great equanimity. However, if there is, by any odd chance, anyone in this suburb who is familiar with the latest developments of modern poetry, I advise you to make your inquiries there. Do you mean to say you're a poet? cried the colonel. I am not a puna jingler, replied the other, if that is what you mean by the term. Nor do I describe in saccharine doggerel such scenes as are often reproduced on colored calendars. If, however, by the word poetry, you imply a certain precision, intensity, and clarity of... He is a poet, father, said Angela, and a very good one. He had a poem in a magazine printed in Paris, didn't you, Will? If the rascal is a poet, cried the colonel, bring in a bottle of whiskey. That'll get him out, if I know the breed. A typical army idea, replied the poet. Perhaps the only one. No, colonel, you need not bring whiskey here, unless you need some yourself. And you may send away that old woman, at whom I do nothing but laugh. I shall come out on my own terms, or not at all. And your terms are, said the colonel. Permission to marry your daughter, said the poet, and the settlement upon her of a sum commensurate with the honor which my profession will bestow upon the family. And if I refuse, cried the outraged father, I am very comfortable where I am, replied William Wall. Angela can eat enough for two, and we are both as happy as anything, aren't we, Angela? Yes, dear, said Angela. Oh, don't. We shall continue to have our bit of fun, of course, added the poet. My dear, said the colonel to his wife, I think we had better sleep on this. I think it must be settled before eleven, my dear said Mrs. Bradshaw. They could see no way out of it, so they had to come to an agreement. The poet at once emerged and proved to be quite a presentable young man, although a little free in his mode of speech. And he was able to satisfy them that he came of an estimable family. He explained that he had first seen Angela in the foyer of a theater during the entr'act, and gazing into her eyes, for he was much attracted. He had been amazed and delighted to find himself enter into possession of her. He was forced to rely in the affirmative to a certain question of Mrs. Bradshaw's. However, young people have their own standards these days. They were married at once, and as he soon took to writing novels, the financial side worked out very satisfactorily, and they spent all their winters on the Riviera.
Breakup by Richard Christian Matheson Read by Wesley Critchfield They were in bed, curled up together like children. That was when he whispered it, and her expression quietly tore open. She asked how long he had felt this way. He gestured without detail. Guessed two or three weeks. She stared at him, wanting to know how soon he intended to break things off. Now, he answered, a silhouette. She gathered the comforter around herself like a funeral shroud, and then started to cry when he told her the relationship was good, but that, for reasons he couldn't name, he wanted out. I'll change, she offered, sitting higher, ready to negotiate. She grabbed a glass of water from her bedside with pale fingers, told him she could be more what he wanted. She would find a way. She watched for his reaction, optimism trapping her. He rose and began to dress, telling her it was too late. He needed something different, but even as he said it, in some odd sense, he didn't relate to the words. Still, he made no effort to correct the message though it frightened him. She tried to understand and told him that if he needed time off to take as much as he required, a weekend, a year, she would wait. He began buttoning his shirt and tying his tie. She watched as he laced his wingtips and asked if he would call. No. He wouldn't say more. You can't do this to us! Her eyes were wide and angry. She was an executioner, sentencing him. He pulled on his suit coat and sat beside the bed, speaking softly. Try to understand. It's not us. It's me. People grow. They want different things. Nothing's forever. He didn't know where the ideas were coming from and felt himself in some grotesque trance. The sun struck the brass headboard as if controlled by a catwalk technician, and lit her bloodless lips. They parted to free a sound of drowning. Assassination. It's someone else, isn't it? No, I just feel different than when we met. He tried to remember when or how they'd met, and couldn't. He felt sick. We've known each other for six months, and you've already fallen out of love? What about all the promises? Our plans, damn you! She tried to slap him, but thoughtlessly drew her fingers down into claws and swiped against his skin. Three uneven scratches etched the war paint of stripes under one eye. He wiped his cheek, smearing the cuff red. He tried to say something as she watched the blood glide down his face. I'm sorry, Jill. Maybe you're right. Maybe I don't love you anymore. I don't know. If I could explain it... He sounded lost, unable to translate himself. I'd just have to move on. Now she looked poisoned. Get out! Now! He grabbed his wallet and his keys and looked at her one last time. He closed the door behind himself. She caught her reflection in the mirror and threw the bedside clock at a deserted image. Outside her apartment, he walked down to his car 
and stopped to lean against the wall in the underground garage. He was suddenly nauseous, and a spasm broke through the glass in his stomach. He began to vomit, and as he arched over to the greasy cement, the sensation somehow felt familiar. The pain's like a dim memory. He became sicker, and tried to think about the conversation he'd just had with... But he couldn't recall her name. Or who she was. Or what they had been doing. He stared down at his right hand, which supported him against the wall. But he no longer recognized it. Where it had been, the slight of structure covered it fine, blonde fuzz. Now it had black hair on its back and knuckles. The wrists were going thicker, the fingers more powerful, the tendons sleek beneath the now tense skin. He tried to concentrate on where he was and saw an ID bracelet on his wrist. It gradually grew tighter and he unclasped it. On one side was an engraving. I love you madly, Jill. He stared at it, thinking, concentrating, unable to place the name. He flipped it over, and on the other side was the name, David. He felt a flicker of recognition, but it vanished in seconds, and he was quickly distracted by the feeling of growing taller, more sinewed. He felt an aggressive stream of ideas and sensations filling his mind. Things deep inside, dying, other things replacing them, taking over, taking control. He'd sensed that he'd been through this hundreds of times, somehow even knew it as the change spread like a perverse warmth, becoming more potent, settling within his cells, becoming them. He stopped vomiting, stood up straight. He was inches taller, pounds heavier. His face had broadened, and his nose was more flat now. A heavy stubble had come in, and he felt it on his face, probing the red wounds of his cheek as they filled in and closed. He ran strong hands through the hair that was now long and curly as a woman came up behind him. Excuse me, I'm looking for my boyfriend. He turned and Jill stared back at him, hoping he could help. He didn't remember anything about her, and said in a deep voice that he had seen no one. Then he walked away, not knowing to take his car. As he exited the garage and moved down the street, he felt a wallet against his thigh. He withdrew it. He looked at the face on the driver's license and felt nothing as he bellowed the wallet wide and took the cash and tossed it aside. Then, feeling the morning sun on his new life, he walked on. Good for another six months. This is Jackie Ayers, and you've been listening to Dead Airwaves on KKRN 88.5. Episode 8, A Name by Mark Slade. Read by Corey Graham. The Possession of Angela Bradshaw by John Collier. Read by Joe Stofko. Breakup by Richard Christian Matheson. Read by Wesley Critchfield. Theme music by Tim Slade.